it's a, a great pleasure to introduce our next presenter. He's a, a real historian's historian. He has a multitude of degrees. Uh, I ran out of paper writing them down here. Uh, his uh, bachelor's from the uh, University of Virginia, where he studied American history, master's degree from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, master's degree from Oxford University, and then his PhD from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill also. He's currently associate professor of history at the United States Military Academy at West Point. I'm very happy that he's infusing good libertarian values in a subtle way to the officer corps of the United States. I think that's also very important that uh, people in the military understand our Constitution and what they're defending. And he's the author of a forthcoming book called Confounding Father, and it's about the life and political thought of Thomas Jefferson. Rob McDonald. Well, it is really great to, uh, to be here tonight. And um, as somebody who, like many of you, has uh, seen the new building or the new expanded building for the first time, it really is a thrill. I've been, I've been uh, looking at the Cato website and watching the progress and getting ma uh, materials in the, uh, in the mail. And uh, to see it in person is really fantastic. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a sad thing that Goliath keeps getting bigger, but it sure is great that uh, David got bigger as well. So uh, yeah, a little, little round of applause for Cato. Well, my topic this evening is uh, liberty and the American experience. And in many respects, uh, I'll be covering some of the same material that Tom treated us to uh, after lunch. Um, we'll be talking about some of the ideas that undergirded the creation of the American Republic some of the philosophies that made possible the American Revolution um, and that set the United States up for the uh, more than two centuries of, of government under our Constitution, which followed. And uh, it's, it's an interesting topic and it's kind of an empowering topic because even at times when it seems as if uh, liberty is yielding and tyranny is advancing and power is growing, it's, it's good to reflect upon the fact that people of other generations faced even more formidable obstacles. And people of other generations had recourse to a set of ideas that we also have recourse to. And that previous generations were able to secure liberty uh, for many of the people of their own time, and that we can do so for all the people of our time. And uh, when we think about the people who inhabited colonial America, we, uh, we think about people who had an exceptional gift. They were part of an extended political tradition that crossed the Atlantic. The revolutionary generation had recourse to a long history um, that was British. And events that took place in Britain also took place in the minds of the people of colonial British America. And they were very proud to be British. To be British um, in America in the 18th century was to be free. Britain was the strongest nation on the planet, but it was also the freest nation. It was also the most prosperous nation. 
and uh, none other than John Adams looking at the British Constitution described it as the most perfect combination of human powers and society which finite wisdom has yet contrived and reduced to practice for the preservation of liberty and the production of happiness. And this is John Adams, and this is 1765. Americans were very proud of their heritage as Englishmen. They were very proud of the fact that their land, their shared society, their shared government with the people on the other side of the ocean connected them to the ideas of freedom. And of course that goes back to 1688 and earlier. But in 1688, the, uh, the people of Britain in their glorious revolution overthrew uh, James II, the king who did not want to share power with parliament and uh, installed in his place William of Orange and his wife Mary as their new monarchs, monarchs who understood and who agreed uh, to be limited in power. Britain was to have a balanced constitution. Britain was to have a monarchy that was devoted, at least officially, to the protection of liberty and that shared power with the people. And, of course, the British are uh, they're a wonderful people. As Tom mentioned, I spent a year over there. Uh, it's bad to generalize about people, of course, but I'm going to generalize about the British just briefly. Um, first of all, I think they're great. And second of all, uh, one of the things that I find charming about them is that uh, not only are they very reserved, but they're also, I think, admirably cautious. And uh, as a group, they're not the most radical, bomb-throwing people on Earth. I think we could probably all agree on that. And uh, they're, they're very orderly. Um, for example, I've noticed uh, that the British have taken standing in line to an art form. Uh, they call it queuing. Uh, in America, it's very haphazard. I remember as a child going to the grocery store with my mother. I remember uh, my mother would not be sure which line would move most quickly. And so she would point to one line and have me stand in line, you know, at, at, on aisle six, and she'd be in aisle five, and if aisle five moved more quickly, she'd call me over, but if, if aisle six was, was going faster, she'd come join me. Never, never would they do that in Britain. In Britain, they have nice compound lines. Everybody uh, is served in the right order. Um, they help the next available, uh, the next available uh, cashier will help the next customer, very, very orderly. And so for the British to have a revolution to overthrow their king was a really big deal. And of course, they needed to explain this. And uh, they turned to John Locke. John Locke, of course, as, as Tom rightfully said, I think probably if you had to, to list the, the top 10 most important people to have lived in the past 1,000 years, he would certainly be on the list. He might even be number one. John Locke, uh, famous for his two treatises on government, famous for his letter concerning toleration, for his uh, thoughts on education, his essay on human understanding, famous for being uh, a, a dead ringer for Jessica Tandy.
John Locke, as, as Tom pointed out earlier, in his second treatise on government, laid out a theory about why government exists. And the point was that the purpose of government is to protect individual rights. As Locke said, people have the right to life, to liberty, to states. They have a property in all those things. And these things are natural. We are hardwired to think for ourselves. No one shares with another human being a brain, right? We are, we are designed to be free, to move about freely. We're given hands with which we can work and acquire property and improve things. And Locke uh, said that these things, they're, they're so inherent that they preexisted even government, that back in the state of nature, that's a jungle, as you can see, Back in the state of nature, I guess it was sort of the, the uh, outback steakhouse philosophy, uh, there were no rules, just rights. You, you had complete freedom. No one told you what to do. No one told you when to get up. No one told you where to go. It was all up to you. And you had your freedom. You had your rights. The problem was, while you had perfect freedom, you didn't have perfect security. And uh, maybe you, you mixed your labor with, uh, with nature and created uh, a wonderful hut to shelter you when it started to rain. But if some barbarian with a big club comes around and threatens you, he may be able to steal that property of yours. And that's a shame. And if we had a caveman standing here, I might, I might be, I might sort of turn to my inner Oprah. And I might ask him, how did that make you feel? And perhaps like the barbers, uh, he would grunt unintelligibly, but we would know the, the answer. He would feel very sad. And as we channeled our inner Oprahs, we know uh, what we would tell him to do. He needs to empower himself. But how do you empower yourself, especially against a big barbarian with a big club? Well, as, as Locke observed, one of the things that you can do is get some friends, get some allies, get some people to defend your rights. Now, of course, there will be a reciprocal obligation. Um, they're not gonna risk their lives or their liberty um, in order to protect yours if you're not willing to do the same for them. And so you will probably um, change the way that you live. You know, before this point uh, in the state of nature, you've been freely wandering the woods, hunting and gathering nuts and roots and berries or taking your spear and fishing or hunting. But that nomadic existence will almost certainly come to an end because, of course, you need to be around these people if they are going to protect your rights, and you need to be around them if you are going to help protect theirs. And so we settle down, and we pick up the plow, and we enter into the uh, phase of civilization. And you can imagine if our caveman's great-great-grandson 
were to declare himself the king or the emperor of this civilization and start taking the rights away of the descendants of the people who entered into this contract with, uh, with his great-great-grandfather. If instead of protecting rights, this government started to injure them, if instead of protecting people's lives, it started taking them away, if instead of protecting liberty, it started constraining people's freedoms, if instead of protecting property, it started to confiscate it without their consent, what did John Locke say those people had the right to do? I'll ask you. Revolution, everyone's saying. But remember, John Locke is English. Petition. Petition. You have the right to petition, to complain, to beseech your, your leader to once again return to the purpose of government. But if still, after imploring him in such a way, your rights were violated, what then do you have the right to do? Revolution. So you can see how this message resonated with the people of 1776. But it's also quite curious, it's also quite interesting, because this is the philosophy that is the ultimate establishment philosophy in England. This is the philosophy that justifies the creation of the long line of monarchs that begins with William and Mary. This is the philosophy that legitimizes the British government. So in a way, it was hardly radical to have these beliefs not only made you a good American, but they also made you a good Englishman. And we can see in the decades following the Glorious Revolution, in America, people embracing many of the principles that, uh, that favored the people of the English-speaking world. One is, uh, for us and to our ears, perhaps, kind of an old-fashioned sort of phrase, an old-fashioned sort of saying, but one that when you really think about it, is a powerful idea on the side of freedom. As James Otis said in 1761, one of the most essential branches of English liberty is the freedom of one's house. A man's house is his castle. I mean, think about what that means. In your house, what are you? You're the king. You're the queen. You're in charge. Now the king or the queen might still be king or queen out in the public square, out on the public road. But on your property, you get to call the shots. And of course, if you value that freedom, it, it goes to follow that you will protect and stand up for the freedom of others to do the same. You want to be in charge of what goes on in your own living room or over your own hearth. You, you, you realize that you're going to have to tolerate your neighbor having the freedom to choose what happens in his living room or his hearth. And as a result, what a wonderful spirit of toleration evolves. This notion that we don't all have to be the same. 
This notion that we don't always have to decide collectively. This notion that there can be diversity, that we can live and let live, that it's a free country. This was very much a sentiment that animated the people of America even before America existed as a nation. And that tolerance, it, it applied as well to people's expressions of faith. Now, of course, at the time of the American Revolution, at the time of the ratification of the Constitution, every state but one had an established church. During the colonial period, every colony had an established religion. And every colony, in various ways, favored that faith. Now, there was religious diversity, but there wasn't much of it. And, of course, the burdens under which people who adhered to a minority faith uh, could be quite great. And every colony at least had on the books, sometimes enforced, sometimes not, sometimes enforced rigorously, sometimes not. But each colony had on the books laws mandating that people attend churches, whether this was their church or not, whether this was their faith or not. And you could imagine what that would do to religion in colonial America. We know that some of the original settlers and some of the colonies, places like Massachusetts and other parts of New England, places like Pennsylvania, they came to America because they wanted to practice their faith. The first wave of Puritans who arrived in Massachusetts in the 1630s, or the pilgrims on the Mayflower in 1620, literally risked their lives to cross the ocean so they could establish in a new and improved England as John Winthrop said, a city on a hill, a beacon to the rest of the world. So the faith of that generation is not something that we can really call into question. But their children, perhaps a little bit less enthusiastic. And their children, perhaps a little bit less devout. And their children, perhaps a bit less so as well. And their children, yeah, they went to the Puritan youth group. It was cool. Um, they had fun parties and stuff. And of course, the fact that each colony had a monopoly faith, that each colony supported and subsidized through the law one church, meant that the religious experience of many people in colonial America compared to the experience that many of us have when we go to get our licenses renewed at the Department of Motor Vehicles. There wasn't any competition until 1739. In 1739, we have the beginning of what historians call the Great Awakening. I mean, just that, that name tells you something about the status of religion in the decades that preceded it. In 1739, there was the great awakening of, of faith when George Whitfield crossed the Atlantic and arrived in America. And George Whitfield, he was something unlike so many of the preachers of his day in America. He was good. He connected with people. He fired people up. He, he was able to speak in a language that they could understand. He was able to serve their spiritual needs. This man was like a rock star. Wherever he went, it was like, like Godstock, like Godapalooza 
like Gadaru. People would, 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 would rush the stage from which he preached and try to tear off pieces of his, his clerical vestments. For real. In Boston, at the time, a town of barely 15,000 people, 30,000 people came to hear him preach on Boston Common. He gave a subsequent sermon in the Old South Church. And there at that meeting house, it was so packed. The crowd was so dense that when finally he finished his sermon, when finally the crowd began to recede from the building, three bodies fell from the walls against which they'd been pressed to death. And this was a man who inspired an incredible degree of passion, an incredible degree of enthusiasm. He uh, was charismatic, he had a booming voice, he was cross-eyed, <laughs> which uh, many people said gave him a very commanding presence. When he started to look at you, it was impossible to look away. And Ben Franklin, of course, being the, the, the quintessential man of the Enlightenment, he heard about this when George Whitfield came to Philadelphia. Uh, Franklin was very skeptical of the, the reports about the size of the crowds that he had drawn. And, and how could thousands of people in an age without uh, functioning microphones, how could thousands of people actually hear him? Well, George Whitfield preached from the, uh, the steps of the State House in Philadelphia. And Franklin sort of stood back from the crowd, and he estimated uh, the distance from which Whitfield was speaking. And he estimated that within this semicircle, this packed, dense semicircle, this crowd, if each person were allotted two square feet, well, he did the math and he figured out there were 30,000 people in Philadelphia who could hear Whitfield and his message. And of course, wherever he went, especially if it were a Sunday, the establishment churches stood empty. And the preachers began to realize something that previously they hadn't understood. They were really lousy at their jobs. And nobody wants to be lousy at one's job. And so people began to, to emulate Whitfield, not just in terms of theology, but in terms of delivery, in terms of the passion that he stirred in terms of the empathy that they showed, in terms of the connections that they made between scripture and the lives of the people. Now the point of all this isn't so much about theology, it's about diversity. Because the more places Whitfield went, the more there was fertile ground for the rise of new and insurgent denominations in America. And where once there might have been just one church, now there would be two or three, or four, and you begin to see the rise of Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians in great numbers in America. And now there's religious competition. Now there's a religious marketplace. And even more important, now there are a lot of people who don't subscribe to the official state church. There are more people who don't subscribe to the official government faith. And they realize something. If the government could be wrong about God in their eyes, the government could be wrong about garbage collection. If the government could be wrong about God, the government could be wrong about 
trade policy. If the government could be wrong about God, the government could be wrong about taxes. If the government could be wrong about God, it could be wrong about anything. It could be wrong about everything. And so this is a very powerful message that people are beginning to understand. And there is another important constellation of ideas leading up to the American Revolution that historians oftentimes describe as classical republicanism. A lot of times they'll refer to, uh, to Locke and his philosophy as Lockean liberalism. And of course, as you know, um, this is classical liberalism that they're referring to. It really has nothing to do with the modern day politics of the left. And the same is true for classical republicanism. When you think of uh, classical republicanism, you shouldn't think of Mitt Romney in a toga, um, or Newt Gingrich, or Sarah Palin, if you prefer. Uh, it's instead a set of ideas that have been handed down from antiquity. A set of ideas that emphasize less so much the purpose of government, but more the process of government, of how government works, or perhaps more to the point, how government can fail. And just as Locke had his ideas about the beginnings of civilization and the beginnings of government, classical Republican thinkers had ideas about the cycles of civilization. And the uh, paintings that I'm about to show were all done by a great Hudson River School artist named Thomas Cole in the 1830s. And the overall composition is called The Course of Empire. But it begins, much as Locke says, uh, in the state of nature. And uh, just note to the, uh, the mountain there with the, the rock poised upon the, uh, the peak that will be featured in, in each one of these panels. But you begin in the state of nature, and much as Locke says, uh, people are, are free, but they're not secure, and they band together to protect their rights. They settle down, they cease their nomadic ways, they pick up the plow, and they move on to the next phase, the pastoral stage, the agrarian phase. And in the minds of a lot of members of the revolutionary generation, this was in some ways the greatest uh, stage of, of civilization, at least in terms of conditioning people to be good citizens and free citizens. Jefferson, for example, um, said about farmers, he said, those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God. They were the chosen people of God because they had a great degree of virtue. They were the chosen people of God because they had a great degree of independence. They were hardworking. I mean, ultimately, what do you call a lazy farmer? First, first starving and then dead. They were their own bosses. They owned their own land. They could provide for their own basic needs and the basic needs of their family which meant that they could involve themselves in public life without needing to use government to take from others. Instead, they could make laws that applied equally to all and that served the, the common good and that protected people's rights. Farmers uh, not only had the virtue that came from independence, they not only had the status of being their own bosses and not uh, seeing themselves as falling into some sort of rank, some sort of hierarchy. But they were also good neighbors. 
They were literally rooted in the soil. I'll ask you, who would you rather have move in next door to you? A farmer or a carny, a carnival worker? Small hands, smell like cabbage. Who would be a better next door neighbor, a farmer or a carnival worker? And, and I don't, I, I want to make clear, I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle or demean um, carnival workers. Uh, my mom is a carny. No, no, she's not. <laughs> but, the, but the point is, I mean, I, I'm guessing, would anyone here prefer a carny? Almost everyone, I think, would, would want a farmer next door. And there's a reason for that. And there's a reason I choose carnival workers. By definition, if you work for a carnival, you're nomadic, right? You travel from town to town, from place to place. But if you're a farmer, you are literally rooted in the soil. You are there to stay. You are invested in the plot of land where you have planted. And therefore, you care about your community. You care about your reputation within your community. You will do well by others. You want to maintain your good name. Where do you see a carny on a Saturday morning? Passed out behind some dumpster. Where do you see a farmer on a Saturday morning? Maybe, maybe out working his fields, or maybe, maybe behind the church, or behind the school, building a playground for the children, right? Because farmers care about their community. They have a vested interest in it. So they're virtuous, they're independent of mind and means. They're hardworking, they're, they're, they're community-spirited. All of this wonderful uh, hard work, all of these great qualities make them great citizens, um, make them great productive uh, workers, um, bring about great abundance and great wealth. So what's the next stage of civilization? It's empire. And here, at sort of the zenith of civilization, we begin to see the sowing of the seeds of its own undoing, according to classical Republican theorists. If the previous generation, if the agrarians had been virtuous and hardworking and uh, independent of mind and means, people here begin to get a little bit lazy. People here begin to perhaps exploit one another. People here begin to care a little bit less about freedom, a little bit less about liberty, and a little bit more about status or place or promises of security. People here begin to get a little bit lazy, a little bit corrupt, a little bit decadent, a little bit depraved, a little bit corpulent, until finally, Society collapses under the weight of its own corruption and the next phase, destruction. Followed quickly, of course, by a return to the state of nature. And the cycle would begin again. Now, at the time of the French and Indian War, when, when George III was installed as the new monarch of Great Britain, Virtually no English-speaking Americans would say that Great Britain was an empire 
that was corrupt or teetering on the brink of collapse. As far as they were concerned, they were the good guys fighting the evil empire, the French. The French, of course, uh, they didn't have a great limited monarch, a constitutional monarch. They had an absolute monarch. The French uh, were seen as the font of all that was wrong, all that was bad in the world. Whereas George III represented a long line of liberty-loving Englishmen. And, of course, other European nationalities that were in his bloodline. But these were the people who supported and defended rights. And in America, as in Britain, everybody loved him. Everybody, with the possible exception of Dalmatians. And of course, in the French and Indian War, you have a great deal of American participation. A man named Fred Anderson has written uh, a fine book um, focusing specifically on the participation of uh, people in Massachusetts in the French and Indian War. Massachusetts uh, is probably similar to other colonies, but we have particularly good records for it. And amazingly, one-third of all men of military age actually put on a uniform, left Massachusetts to serve in the French and Indian War. I mean, this is a tremendous degree of mobilization, a tremendous degree of commitment on the part of the colonies fighting for the cause, the cause of England. And of course, uh, given where I teach, obviously I'm an expert on military history, and so I can tell you that there were red arrows and blue arrows and red explosions and blue explosions. And we won. We won the French and Indian War. Hooray for England. And yet, and yet in this contest between empires, which essentially removed the French from North America, and extended the British Empire all the way to the Mississippi River. Britain began to lay the groundwork for its own undoing. Between 1754 and 1763, the national debt of Britain doubled. It doubled. And of course, members of Parliament wanted to think of ways that they could avoid future expensive wars. And while the French had been removed from North America, at least the French military had been removed, the Native Americans had not. And so in 1763, Parliament uh, drew this proclamation line, this invisible boundary at the crest of the Appalachian Mountains that ran all the way from what is now Canada, all the way now down toward Georgia. And English-speaking American settlers could not move west of this land, even though many of them had fought west of this, this line. Many of them had fought to gain control of the Ohio River Valley. Many of them had fought the Indians. Many of them had seen their villages burned. Many of them had seen the loss of a son, or a father, or a brother, or a friend, or a limb. 
against the enemy. And now their nation, Great Britain, was siding with the enemy. Now Great Britain, their nation, which is committed, or at least supposed to be committed, to protecting their liberty, is drawing invisible lines that they cannot cross. The British flag flies over that territory, but they are not welcome there. And of course, if preventing future expensive wars is the first thought of Parliament, paying for the most recent expensive war comes quickly thereafter. And the idea in 1765 is to levy a stamp tax. And if you were the British, I mean, it's as if they went to uh, Blackwell's bookshop or went on Amazon.co.uk and uh, ordered How to Lose an Empire for Dummies. Because just about every step they take, in the end, will work against them. In the end, will galvanize a group of colonists who, frankly, are united by, by nothing else than the desire to be left alone. And that's a very wonderful and weird and peculiar and peculiarly American form of unity. But that is what united them, to retain their autonomy, to retain their ability to govern themselves. And yet with the stamp tax, an extremely obnoxious tax, there was actually this stamp that was affixed to paper products. And, it, you know, the British flipping through their, uh, their handbook, How to Lose an Empire for Dummies, um, you know, the, the first step is, is anger all the people out in the back country. Um, the second step is go for the folks who live along the seacoast with the Stamp Act and make sure you, you target um, and infuriate particularly important occupational constituencies. So lawyers, of course, um, then and now are traditionally overrepresented in houses of assembly and legislatures. So let's mandate that the stamp have to be affixed to all legal documents, making it more troublesome, more onerous, more expensive for them to do business. They won't like that. They'll be against us. And uh, while we're at it, I think we should uh, go after merchants. You know, all manner of paper products have to bear the stamp, making these products more expensive, making it cumbersome for the merchants to keep track of these stamps and help collect these taxes, um, making it more difficult for merchants to sell their products because people can less uh, easily afford to buy them. So we'll get the merchants against us. They have wonderful connections with other merchants all up and down the seaport. So let's make sure that we get them fired up as well. And uh, gee, who else? Oh, I know. How about, how about we go after the press? Let's go after the media. Let's mandate that the stamp be affixed to newspapers and get them against us. And on Sundays, especially after the Great Awakening, I'll tell you, those clergymen, they are very important, and people really listen to what they have to say. So let's mandate that the stamp be affixed to things like Bibles and, and marriage licenses. And, and let's not forget the professors. Um, they think that they're important, even if they're not. So let's mandate that the stamp be affixed to college diplomas. Oh, and there's one important group we've left out. Drunk mobs. 
Let's mandate that the stamp be affixed to playing cards and packages of dice. And of course, what happened is what you would expect. People rallied together. People protested. People petitioned. People targeted effigies of stamp collectors or actual stamp collectors with abuse, with, uh, with sh social shame, with uh, all sorts of disincentives. People began to boycott goods that bore the stamp. And uh, as you turn the pages of How to Lose an Empire for Dummies, of course, you see uh, that you should reinforce bad behavior. So, uh, well, I, I've mentioned to a couple of you, I have a, a, a little boy who's six and a little girl who's four. And just a year ago, um, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit, uh, as she was on the precipice of attending nursery school, we were just making the final push toward having her fully potty trained. Grace is her name. And uh, if Grace had uh, an accident in the living room, let's say, would we give her a lollipop or ask her to stand in the corner? What, what would you do? She did something bad. Stand in the corner, right? If she, if she um, was successful in her mission to be potty trained, would we have her stand in the corner or would we give her a lollipop? A lollipop. Well, the colonists, with their boycotts, with their protests, with their, their uh, rallies, with their petitions, You'd think you'd put them in the corner. But what did the British do? Remember, they're reading How to Lose an Empire for Dummies. A lollipop. In 1766, they repealed the Stamp Act. And Americans learned an important lesson. If the British government does something that we don't want to do, then we can protest and they will reverse course. And of course, what made the Stamp Act so obnoxious was not only its practical impact, it was also the fact that it was levied by parliament and they had no representation in parliament. Each colony had its own miniature parliament where the people had representation, the Virginia House of Burgesses, the Massachusetts legislature, but they had no representation on the other side of the ocean. And uh, while of course, nowadays we have highly developed senses of ethics that sometimes confuse us, but I think I, I could expect you all to know the answer to this question. What do you call it when someone reaches into your pocket and takes something without asking? Stealing, theft. And that's what Parliament was doing to them. Parliament, which is supposed to be protecting their individual rights to property, is now taking their property away. And while it repeals the Stamp Act, it will impose in 1767 the Townsend Duties, another series of taxes on lead, glass, paint, paper, and tea. And here again, they have no representation in Parliament. And here, even more uh, troublingly, the money that is raised will not only go into the British Treasury, but it will be turned around and it will be used to pay the governors, the royal governors of the American colonies. Now, royal governors used to depend upon their own colonial assemblies for their pay. And that gave the, the colonial legislatures a good deal of leverage over these royal governors. 
They may take orders from the other side of the Atlantic, but if they wanted to be paid, they had to execute them in a way that was amenable to the people here in America. But now that leverage was lost. And so once again, the colonists uh, protested. Once again, they petitioned. Once again, they drew together and they had committees of correspondence and they were communicating through a network of resistance from, from one end of the eastern seaboard to the other. And once again, the British government, in response to this bad behavior, decided to give the colonists a lollipop or have them stand in the corner? Another lollipop. The British government repealed the Townsend duties. And the day that they did this, March 1770, they hoped would live on as a day um, of Anglo-American friendship, a day of Anglo-American amity. And yet we remember this day, March 5th, 1770, for a different reason. It's because on that day, a cold night in Boston, a poor, unfortunate Sentry, person who we might say was, was part of uh, peacekeeping troops. He'd been stationed, he'd been tasked with, with standing guard in front of the Customs House, the most despised building in all of Boston. That's where the tax collectors worked. And a bunch of little kids gathered around him and started pelting him with snowballs. And soon some more kids showed up and the snowballs turned to ice and sticks. And then, and we don't know how this happened. We don't know the degree to which this was orchestrated and organized, although it certainly seems suspicious. Then all the church bells of Boston on this Monday night began to ring. And when all the church bells begin to ring on a Monday night, what's that a sign of? Some sort of public emergency, some sort of public alarm, like a fire. And so all the people of Boston come out of doors and they gather in the center of town. They gather around the customs house, this huge crowd of people now. And, and, and the, of course, the, the sentries have called for reinforcements. So now there are British soldiers with their backs against the wall, their bayonets fixed. People in the beginning of the, in the, in the front of the crowd, they don't want their chests to press against these bayonet points. So they push back. And of course, people in the back of the crowd, they feel the the crowd pushing back. What are they going to do in this revolutionary mosh pit? They're going to push forward. And it's chaos. And it's pandemonium. And it's dark. And no one is quite sure what's going on. And all the bells are ringing. And, and, and it, when all the bells are ringing, it's a sign of alarm, of emergency, of possibly a, a, a big, what? Fire, someone says. And one of the British soldiers does. And that's the Boston Massacre. Now, the reality is, it's the Boston misunderstanding. But as far as Americans were concerned, as far as Americans outside of Boston knew, it was a massacre as it was portrayed by people like Paul Revere, the silversmith in this engraving, who has their backs against the wall, the colonists do, who's clearly giving the command to fire. British captain is. So Americans are now convinced that not only is the British government taking away their liberty, 
Not only is the British government taking away their property, not only is the British government corrupting their royal governors, but the British government is now taking away their lives. In other words, all of the things that government is supposed to do, the British government is doing the opposite. The Americans are beginning to see a clear picture, a clear pattern. They continue to resist British authority. In December of 1773 in Boston at Griffin's Wharf, Americans dressed as Indians are going to board three British ships, the uh, Beaver, the Dartmouth, and the Eleanor, and they are going to destroy by throwing overboard 90,000 pounds in terms of weight, 90,000 pounds of tea. This taxed tea is about to be unloaded and they will not stand for it. Their object, of course, is only to destroy the tea. It's not to steal the tea. It's not to profit from the tea. An elderly man is, is seen stuffing tea into the pockets of his coat and he's stripped naked and sent home in disgrace. To get into the cargo holds, they have to bust open the padlocks of the three ships. The next morning, the three ship's captains are, are provided with three new padlocks. But still, as far as the British are concerned, this is a terrible, terrible transgression. So what do the British do? Do they give the American colonists a lollipop? Or do they ask them to stand in the corner? You'd expect a lollipop. But what do they actually do? They give them a, a severe beating. I mean, old school, right? Completely unexpected. Completely not what the colonists are used to. They impose upon the colonies what they themselves call the coercive acts. Right, that's their happy, sunny spin. The colonists call them the intolerable acts. They shut down Boston Harbor. They ban the meeting of the Massachusetts Assembly. They ban even the meeting of uh, Massachusetts uh, local uh, town councils and village boards. You can't even have a town meeting. In other words, these Englishmen who live in Massachusetts can now no longer come together to make laws for themselves. They've lost one of the most essential privileges of being an Englishman, one of the most essential rights. People begin to say that they are being treated not like Englishmen, but like Irishmen, like an occupied people, like a conquered people. Others begin to say that they are beginning to be treated like slaves. Patrick Henry surveys the landscape. He sees that the British government, which is supposed to be protecting rights of life and liberty and property, is in fact taking those rights away. The British government, who is supposed to be protecting us from the barbarian has become the barbarian. As Henry says, we are in a state of nature. 
In a way, the revolution has already happened. In a way, the decision has already been made. It will take some time for the people in the Continental Congress to figure that out. Even after April 1775, when the war for independence begins at Lexington and Concord, it's still not yet a war for independence. It's just a war against Britain, a war against tyranny. But as the months pass, as publications like Tom Paine's Common Sense get wider circulation, as people begin to see British troops firing upon Americans, as people begin to see this as a struggle for liberty, as people begin to see people struggle for liberty and being willing to risk death, more and more people come around to the idea that this indeed is a war for independence, that this is indeed a war for a new government, a government that will protect the rights of individuals, a government that will respect human nature, the laws of nature and of nature's God, as Thomas Jefferson writes. So the American tradition of liberty is built upon solid foundations. It's built upon multiple constellations of thought. It's built upon a long history. It's built upon a culture of toleration. It's built upon a belief in the sanctity of private property. It's built upon a basic and fundamental understanding of individual rights. We know that the people in 1776 didn't have everything perfect. We know, of course, that at the same time, they accused the British of, of trying to reduce them to slavery. They owned other human beings. But we can see in this revolution, we can see in this war for independence, a people in mass making universal claims about universal rights that could be applied not only to Americans or not only to white Americans, but as Jefferson would say in his last letter, written nearly 50 years after the ratification of the Declaration of Independence. All eyes are opened or opening to the rights of man, to some parts sooner, to others later, but finally, to all. Thank you very much.